If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and find Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to start there. That's going to be our launch pad. We're going to be all over the Bible, uh, as the previous preview told you. (laughs) We're going to talk about the whole Bible tonight. So, buckle up. I hope and pray that what you get from this night uh, is a few things. Number one, that you might apprehend with greater clarity, not fullness, of course. We won't get that until we see Jesus face to face, but better clarity than when you came in the room, that the Bible is an unbelievably amazing book. Second, that you would get that the Bible is unbelievably amazing because it's true. Right? It's not just an amazing story, it's an amazing reality. That God has seen fit to enter into human history, to enter into covenant with humanity and to be faithful to his covenant because of his unchanging nature. And thirdly, that you would be excited for the semester as Kevin gets to drill down deep week in and week out into fleshing out the, the, the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the covenants of God in Scripture. So tonight, we're going to try to set the table A series of sermons with Kevin on the covenants throughout the spring. And I hope to show you that a proper theology of the covenants is the spine of Scripture. In other words, it goes the length of the canon from Genesis to Revelation. And it serves as a connecting point for so much of God's work in the world, particularly among His people. So God and Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Jesus are main characters. Those are the people that you would see on the poster, right? But they are also subjects of the biblical covenants. So if we don't have a right understanding of the covenants, we don't have a right understanding of why these particular people are so important. Now when we think about the covenants then, we're really asking the question... How should I put this book together? I mean, I may have heard growing up in church, well, this is one story. It's 66 books, but it's telling one story. Okay, what's the story? Like, what's the narrative? What's the drama? What's taking place? How is it that the author of Scripture is entering into the story of Scripture to bring about his purposes in his world? That's the question of the covenants. You read this Bible, I'm sure it's 2022, so all of you are probably batting a thousand right now on your 2022 Bible reading plans, am I right? right, You're already like two days behind, it's cool, it's cool, that's what the weekends are for. Shameless side note, find you a Bible plan that's five days a week, like just give yourself the grace to be like, hey, I can have makeup days, everybody makes mistakes, right? So as we're starting... Like, I knew that was going to happen. I knew that was going to happen. It's just like a, it's a reflex. So if you're reading, you're in Genesis right now, and maybe you're in Matthew, maybe you're in the Psalms, and you're, you're reading things about the storyline of Scripture. And you'll find that there's wonderful continuity in Scripture. So the character of God in Genesis 1 and in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and in Isaiah is the same as the character of God in James and in Hebrews and in 3 John. I mean, there's wonderful continuity throughout the storyline of Scripture in certain things. But there's also great discontinuity. Right? We don't, you guys didn't come here with doves and goats and bulls, right? Something has changed for the people of God that is true today that wasn't true 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. So what's going on? Covenant theology tries to give us categories that answer that main question. So let's, you should be in Hebrews 8 by now. I've given you plenty of time to find it. Hebrews 8. We're just going to read the whole chapter. We're going to fly through it. I'm going to make one point and then we're going to fly. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 8. How is there still pages flipping? This is crazy. Um, you had your chance. Here we go. Verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, for each one his bro- or, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old, and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, That's a lot. Covenant theology will allow you to read that chapter and go, oh yeah, oh yeah, I see where he's going. That's amazing. If you don't have a right understanding of what God is doing in history through the covenants he's made with different federal heads throughout time and space, then you'll get to Hebrews 8 and go, man, I'm glad we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. Why do I have to go to a priest? Thanks, Jesus. And you'll miss that this chapter shows us that in Christ, everything has changed. That the new covenant is really new. That it's a better covenant. So there's a lot going on. And obviously, Kevin is going to be able to unpack much more as the semester goes on. Tonight, I want to give us some categories and an overview of the covenants so that the work you do this spring will be fruitful for you, okay? So first thing, what is a covenant? We've been talking about that. It's on the screen. What's a covenant? Um, If you own a home and you are in a neighborhood that has a homeowner's association, sometimes you have to sign a covenant, right? If you get married, you enter into a marriage covenant. There, There are ways in which we in the world recognize what covenants are. In one sense, a covenant is a promise, right? Between two parties where stipulations are given and blessings and rewards are promised in relation to the obedience to those stipulations. Sam Renahan, who is, I think, one of the best thinkers on this from a perspective that I hold to, which is unapologetically Baptist, um, surprise, this is Lakeview Baptist Church. Um, he says that a covenant is an arrangement provided by God beyond the natural creator-creature relationship. So, think about this. God is the creator. We are his creation. You go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and you recognize that God has made everything in the world that is, and he's made you and me as his image bearers. We are uniquely inscribed with the mark of God in comparison to the rest of the creation. And so in nature, what is the right relationship from creator to creature? You see Paul hinting at this in places like Romans chapter 9, right? What right does the pot have to speak to the clay, to mean to the potter? What right does the clay have to say anything to the one who made him? Here's the point. Naturally, creation bears no obligation on the creator. But the creator places all obligation on the creature. You and I, as the creation of God, owe Him everything, and God, as our Creator, owes us nothing. It is completely unnecessary for God to reveal Himself to you. That's not natural. That's not going to happen just 
naturally as the course of life goes on, that requires something in God to act. It requires Him to posit something. So here's my point. A covenant is a positive institution. Now when I say the word positive, I don't mean good, like positive or negative. I mean positive as in it has been posited into creation. Right? When you posit a question, you bring it out. God is positing covenants. It's a positive institution. In other words, God steps into His creation unnecessarily, freely, as sheer grace, so that you and I might know Him. In other words, it's not natural or necessary that covenants exist. God did not need to enter into a covenant with anyone. So in a real sense, this is foundational to our whole conversation and to the whole semester and to the rest of your life as you study the Bible. Every covenant with mankind from God is a gracious act on His part. All relation between Creator and humanity is grace. Renahan continues, he says, Covenants involve the distribution of benefits, either freely promised or conditioned on some action that otherwise would not be available to the creature. So, in other words, in a covenant, God and man enter into an agreement where certain promises are made, certain stipulations are required, and certain judgments are threatened upon the breaking of those stipulations. And because they're positive and not natural, you and I, as good Baptists, which I hope all of you are, need to recognize that because covenants are not natural, because they're positive institutions, we need to be really careful about making inferences between the covenants, thinking that covenant A needs to have the exact same framework and mechanics as covenant B. Remember, they're positive institutions. They're completely unnecessary. God decides to enter into a covenant with you. He can do like whatever he wants. Remember, he's the creator and you're the creature. So we want to be careful to only say what the Scriptures are telling us when we think about how we might understand how those covenants and the mechanics of each covenant fit together. You still with me? Awesome. Okay, so that's the foundation of what a covenant is. It's a positive institution, completely unnecessary, an act of God's grace to relate to you and me, to offer us rewards and blessings and promises, giving us stipulations and threatening judgments. Now, before we move into the actual covenants, we need to learn about one more category, and that's the category of typology. So you may want to write that one down. Typology. What is typology? There's a guy named Greg Beal who's way smarter than any of us will ever be, and he defines typology like this. He says it's the study of analogical correspondence. So not exactly the same, but similar. Analogical correspondence among revealed truths about persons, events, institutions, and other things within the historical framework of God's special revelation, i.e. the Scriptures, which from a retrospective view, looking backward, are of a prophetic nature and are escalated in their meaning. So let me try to break that down. What Beale is saying is, typology is when you and I study certain events or certain people, or certain institutions, or certain actions that exist in Scripture. And we see how those things are connected. And what we'll find is, when we look back, you know, we're on this side of the cross and resurrection, whereas the Old Testament was on this side of the cross and resurrection. So when we look back, we will recognize those things as prophetic. They are speaking and pointing into the future, saying, I am not All that I am, I am pointing to something greater. I'm pointing to something better. I'm pointing to something that escalates. So let's use the Lamb of God as an example. In Genesis chapter 3, mankind fell and everything broke. God gave Adam and Eve certain rules to follow and they broke those rules. Namely, they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told Adam... That in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely what? Die. But in Genesis chapter 3, lo and behold, Adam and Eve are not dead. Instead, 
after he pronounces the curses and the hardships that they will face because they have broken his covenant, an animal is killed as a substitute and blood was spilled so that skins might be made to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. That's a type, all right? That's a type. That's a person or an event or an institution or an action that's going to be connected to something, all right? So let's use that as the beginning. Flip over, metaphorically, to Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is told by God to go up on the mountain and sacrifice his only son Isaac, the son of the promise. And Abraham believes that God will provide the lamb. He will provide the sacrifice. And lo and behold, after we see Abraham faithful to carry out God's word, God provides a ram to serve as a substitute for Isaac. Blood is shed and a substitute is put in its place. More chapters later, Exodus chapter 12, we get to the 10th plague and God is telling the people of Israel through His servant Moses, what you need to do tonight is find a lamb. And you need to kill it. And you need to spill its blood and you need to cover the lintel of your doorpost with the blood of the lamb because the angel of death is coming. Judgment is coming. And if he sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over you because the lamb will serve as a substitute for the judgment that's about to take place. Instead of the firstborn sons of Israel, the lamb covered the house. Later, Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement, once a year the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice a goat on behalf of the sins of Israel and sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And then a second goat, what's called the scapegoat, would be taken and the priest would lay his hands on that goat and confess onto the goat in a physical, visceral way the sins of the people of God known as Israel. And then he would lead that goat out into the wilderness and let him go to wander away so that the sins of the Israelites might be separated from them as far as the east is from the west. It's a type. Finally, we see the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, chapter 4. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. The suffering servant, the one who will come, he will be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. The Lord will lay on Him the iniquity of us all. He is like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. That's a type. All these are types. All these are communicating something very important to us about God's justice, His judgment on sin, man's responsibility before Him as a sinner, the availability of a substitute, and more. They also point forward to something greater. They point forward to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who John the Baptist confessed in John chapter 1, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is the fulfillment to the promises that were made in the types. Jesus is the substance that was pointed to by the shadows of the types. All of the types point forward to what's called the anti-type. So when I look at the Old Testament and I will look at this strand of lambs who are substitutes whose blood is spilled to cover the sins of God's people, I would look through them in a prophetic way and say they're pointing to a lamb who is to come. And on this side of the cross, I look back and say Jesus is the lamb who has come. So that's typology. That's vitally important as we think about putting the covenants together. I promise it sounds like we're doing a lot of groundwork. We're already 30 minutes in or so. It's okay. Covenant and typology. Both are vital for us to understand what's going on in the Bible. Now what we'll aim to do is run through the various major covenants in Scripture, give an overview of their important features, and try to organize them in a way that is faithful to the Scriptures themselves. So we've prepared a picture that is <laughs> apparently we're not supposed to use that photo <laughs> all right so 
Like, it's really down. Wow. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Nothing but quality here at Lakeview. We just try to, yeah, we try undistracting excellence. We want our technology to just get out of the way so that we can meet with God. Okay, so as that's restarting, as that's restarting, let me try to give you a, a paint a picture for you. God in himself, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the beginning and the end of theology. He in himself is the centerpiece of our faith. And so it makes total sense that tonight as we talk about covenants, we're going to start with the triune God. If we don't have a right understanding of who God is, then we're going to run into all kinds of problems, not just in how we put together our Bibles, not just in how we understand the covenants. We're going to run into all kinds of problems in every aspect of our understanding of the Christian faith, and we're going to run into all kinds of problems in every aspect of our life. Because you and I were made in His image. And if we try to live our life as image bearers to an image we don't understand, or an image that we are falsely believing in, of course we're going to run into problems. Look at that. That's not an error. That's actually the picture. Okay, so... It kind of looks like a, like a test screen. Um, all right, so my goal for the rest of our time is to make that picture make sense. So, by starting with the triune God, we must be careful not to speculate, I'm going to use a, a loaded theological term, willy-nilly about what God was up to before the creation of the universe. All right? So, like, what was God doing before the creation of the world? Oh. Like, he tells us some things in hints and in glimpses. The scriptures give us peaks. And theologians have used those glimpses and hints and peaks to formulate what we would call the covenant of redemption. So, that should be the first thing that pops up. Boom, 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 boom. Yep, covenant of redemption. So, this is where I do want you to get your Bibles and find Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Epihasians, chapter 1. <coughs> Again, foundational to our understanding of the Bible, understanding of how God is revealing Himself and His works in the world through Scripture, we need to get a right understanding of God, and we need to get a right understanding of what God is up to. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We're going to read this big chunk, but then we're going to look at some couple of things. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So just stop right there. Paul is saying that we need to praise and bless and glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because He has blessed us, that is, the church, the people of God, those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us, that is, the church, the people of God, those who have been saved by grace through faith, faith in Him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So before... There was a world before there was time and space, before there was anything outside of God. Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 1, the Father and the Son were planning for you. So how do we make sense of that? First, we need to recognize that the Father chose us, that is the people of God in Christ, before the foundation of the world, before time and space, before creation itself, the Father and Son were enacting a plan to accomplish the salvation of the elect. There's a plan going on between the Father and the Son, and we'll see in just a moment that the Spirit is going to apply the workings of the Son for the sake of that plan. Number two, the Son received a mission. The Father chose us in Him, the Son received a mission to incarnate, to put on flesh and dwell among us, to become human, to live a perfect life, to die as that substitute that we just talked about for sinners. 
But the promise connected to that incarnate work is in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that is, the ones who were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, might be to the praise of His glory. So the covenant of redemption is the covenant in God, whereby the Father chooses for Himself a people to bestow eternal life. And He will do that through the Son. The Son will put on flesh, become the God-man, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of God. He'll live a perfect life. He'll die a perfect death. He will go into death and Hades itself in utter humiliation. The one, Philippians says, who had equality with God and yet did not grasp it, humbled himself by becoming a servant. So through the humiliation of the Son, you and I might enjoy the inheritance of eternal life in Christ. And what's the stipulation? Through His obedience, there's a reward. And the reward is that every knee will bow and every tongue on earth and under the earth and above the earth will confess that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is Lord. So in the covenant of redemption, the Father chooses a people for Himself The Son receives a mission to go and secure that people for Himself. And third, the Holy Spirit then applies the work of the Son of God to those whom God had predestined for adoption to Himself. Let's just keep reading verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the story of the whole Bible, in one sense, is the outworking of this covenant. The story of the whole Bible, of all of human history, is the outworking of this covenant in God. He is the beginning and the end of our faith. From our perspective, however, that plays out in a few biblical covenants. So first, uh, of the covenants on our end, we're going to look at the covenant of works. So that should come up, bam, covenant of works, that's that's production value right there, guys. You just point at it, it just happens. Covenant of works. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. God creates Adam and Eve and blesses them. They were very good in the beginning. All creation is good, right? God looks at all that He's made and He says it's very good. And He gives Adam and Eve laws to keep, stipulations, right? He enters into a covenant with them. He provides promises to them and stipulations to them, and a threat of judgment. So he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals on the ground. That's a positive command. Things to do. And then he gives them a negative command, right? Things not to do. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now the promise of the covenant of works, that is, that Adam and Eve would be obedient to the law of God so that He might relate to them and give them the promise that He promises. Well, what's the promise? Why did Adam and Eve have to leave Eden? It's not because the animals would have been more corrupted. It's not because... The land would have been more corrupted. It's because there was something there that Adam and Eve forfeited when they broke God's law. They forfeited the tree of life. The implication there is that the promise God gave to Adam and Eve is, if you will obey my words and experience my blessing, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, this tree of life will be yours. Eternal life will be yours. And they ate from the wrong tree. So the covenant of works is the idea that Adam and Eve were to obey God's law in order to attain eternal life. And Adam and Eve, as the first humans, 
find themselves in a very peculiar position, especially Adam, Scripture tells us. He is our representative. He's our federal head. So what is happening in Adam now happens for us. In Adam, 1 Corinthians tells us, when he sinned, all died. So when you and I are born, we're born in the black. We're born in the covenant of works that has already been broken. We're born to thorns and thistles. We're born in painful childbirth. But we're also born with a promise. And the promise of the covenant of works, after the judgments were meted out and the curses were proclaimed, was that God would send a man to crush the serpent's head. So every human is born in Adam, born underneath his condemnation and guilt. This is a universal problem for humanity. So when you think about the covenant of works, so the covenant between God and Adam, this is a covenant under which all of humanity resides because Adam is the representative of all humanity. That leads us to the next covenant in Scripture. That's the Noahic covenant, or the covenant with Noah. So you flip over to uh, Genesis chapter 9, after the uh, story of the ark and the flood and the judgment of all the earth takes place, creation has been cleansed of sinful image bearers, but it has not been cleansed of sin. Creation is still fallen in Genesis chapter 9. Man is still fallen. Noah and his family, was, uh, they were saved from the judgment of the water, but their souls were not redeemed. So God intervenes again with common grace for a fallen, common kingdom of creation. He goes to uh, Noah in Genesis chapter 9. You can turn there if you like. In Genesis chapter 9, notice what he says in verse 1. And God blessed Noah with his, and his sons and said to them, doesn't this sound familiar? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. This is a reestablishment through Noah and God's covenant with him that man is still the image bearer. Even though he has fallen. And he is still the steward of creation. You flip down to verse 5. It says, And your lifeblood I will require, for your lifeblood rather, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning from the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Verses 5 through 7, remember we're thinking about types and these categories that begin to escalate. There's a new idea in the covenant with Noah that wasn't explicitly present in the covenant with Adam. And that is society, justice, government. The main example here in chapter 9 being the death penalty for image bearers who sinfully take away the life of another image bearer, right? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So these are the laws that God is giving to Noah. And by extension, he's giving these laws to all of humanity. Remember, this is a common covenant. So you see the Noahic covenant there. You and I are born fallen because we're in Adam, but we're also under the common grace of the covenant of Noah. You and I get to live in societies that don't eat each other. You and I get to live in communities that don't immediately erupt into chaos. I mean, man's heart is deceitful and sick and thoroughly wicked and not to be trusted. How are we still here? And the answer is, God and His grace is sustaining us. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 9 with this common covenant common grace for a fallen kingdom of creation. In later verses in Genesis chapter 9, God promises something. There's another promise here. He promises to protect humanity from utter destruction. He had just destroyed humanity with a flood. And now, through Noah, he's making an establishment of common grace. He's saying both the sinful and the wicked and the righteous 
will all experience in some capacity the kindness and grace of God. So you and I, before we were Christians, were recipients every moment of the grace of God. You and I, as Christians, are still recipients every moment of the grace of God. We don't escape Noah, right? The blue is throughout this whole thing. Common grace is given to all. All right, moving on. Genesis chapter 12, a couple of pages later, we get to the Abrahamic covenant. So you have here this covenant of redemption that is going to secure for God those whom he has chosen from before the foundations of the world. And we'll fill out the white section in just a moment. We're all under Noah, and humanity is dead in sin through the fallenness of Adam in the covenant of works. But God sees fit to intervene into human history yet again and begin to build something that will lead to the fulfillment of his promises. And he begins this building with Abraham. That's why it's at the bottom. Abraham is the foundation. We're moving from the common kingdom of fallen humanity to a particular people through Abraham. So over the next three covenants that we'll see in just a moment, Abraham, Moses, and David, God will be constructing a framework or a a scaffolding, if you will, that will one day be used to create the true object of God's work, namely the people of God who are in Christ through faith from before the foundations of the world. In Genesis 12, God calls then Abram to leave the Chaldeans, leave his homeland and enter into the land that God will show him what we know as the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he gives promises that Abraham will be the father of a great nation. And that promise is marked with a sign. That sign is the sign of circumcision. So Genesis 12 through 17, obviously we don't have time to get into all of it. But Genesis 12 through 17 could be seen as a preface or a preparation for the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant where the people of God dwell in the land under his law. We'll get to that in just a moment. Before God's people could dwell in his land under his law, there needed to be a people. And so God enters into a covenant with Abraham to say, I will make you the father of a great nation. The scaffolding begins to rise. Abraham would create a people by the grace of God and then lead them into the land. Now, flip over to Joshua chapter 1. I mean, uh, 21, sorry. Joshua chapter 21. Just a couple of pages later. I want, to, I want you to get your eyes on this. Notice what we're talking about so far has been temporal and not eternal. It's been If you will obey my commands, I will bring you to this place and give you this blessing. There's been nothing about salvation. There's been nothing about the state of their soul. There's been nothing about removing the sin stain that we inherited from our father, Adam. So look at Joshua chapter 21, starting in verse 43. Remember, Joshua, just so that we're clear, is the one who leads the people of Israel from after Moses, after the Exodus, after the wanderings in the wilderness, into the promised land. And through Joshua's leadership, the people of Israel conquer the nations who are already inhabiting the land. And we get to the end of Joshua, here at Joshua 21, starting in verse 43, it says this, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers, Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So what we see here is that the covenant that God gives to Abraham, in a very real sense, is fulfilled right here. God promises to make Abraham the father of a great nation and to lead them into a promised land that they would find rest. And here in Joshua 21, all of these things came to pass. But underneath this covenant with Abraham, there's a promise being carried that through an offspring of Abraham, not just the people of Israel will enjoy the blessings of God, but all the nations. 
through your offspring, God says to Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. So in a real sense, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of works. Follow my rules, obey my laws, and here will be your blessings, but carried in mystery in the covenant of Abraham is a promise that through an offspring, all the nations will be blessed. The seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 connects here to the offspring of Abraham who will bless the nations. Let's continue. The Mosaic covenant. So we have Abrahamic on the bottom. We have Mosaic at the top. In the Old Covenant or the Mosaic covenant, if you read uh, the Scriptures, especially the New Testament, often you will hear the Mosaic covenant being referenced as the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant under Moses is where the people of God, known as Israel, get the law. And the law is a good gift from God that reveals to them very true things about who God is, but also comes with an unfortunate dark side for those who are sinners. In the Old Covenant, God gives the kingdom of Israel a law to follow in exchange for covenant blessings. Right? So God promises Israel through Moses. You read Exodus and Deuteronomy and you'll read over and over, if you will be quick to obey my rules, I will bless you and you will be, it will be well with you in the land and there will be prosperity and you will have victory over your enemies. The sacrificial system was then given as a sign to the continual requirement to be righteous and obedient to the law of God. The giving of the law, however, also revealed Israel's utter inability to keep the law. Trusting in the law in order to save them would actually prove to condemn them all the more. Trusting in the law to be salvific would be to misunderstand what God is doing here in this covenant. The old covenant established a kingdom, but the Israelites broke the covenant which led to their defeat, their humiliation, their exile from the land. Underneath the Mosaic Covenant, however, was a promise and a type and a shadow that although there are these human redeemers we see in the book of Judges, men who God will raise up to deliver God's people from their sinful behavior and from their captors and oppressors, You get to Exodus 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the whole reason that they can receive the Ten Commandments is because it's the Lord God who redeemed you out of Egypt. So underneath the Mosaic Covenant is this promise and this type that God is their true Redeemer. God is their Deliverer. God is their Liberator from their enemies. In the Mosaic Covenant, we see more clearly the role of priests, those who offer sacrifices on behalf of Israel, and prophets, those who speak God's word to Israel. And as we move into the Davidic covenant, that last piece of the frame, that last piece of the scaffolding, we see the importance of kings. In the Davidic covenant, God establishes the promise of a permanent place for the kingdom of Israel, a place where God would dwell with his people, the temple. He promises rest for the people from their enemies, and a ruler from David who would sit on that throne. Notice, if you know the story of the Bible, that this covenant is given in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David. It's not given to the kingdom of Israel. It's given to David. The king will stand as the representative for his people. And when the king fails, the people will suffer. This is why... First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles is so focused on the track record of the kings. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And we know the track record, track record of the kings. It's abysmal. They failed over and over. David's own son, Solomon, the one who built the temple where God would come down and the Shekinah glory of his presence would fill the temple in such a way that the priests had to leave and they couldn't even offer sacrifices there. That Solomon, the very one who seemed to be the heir of promise, the son of David who would establish that throne, he is the one who led to the schism of Israel. All throughout this covenant, the covenant with David, are promises from the prophets of one who will come with a better covenant. Those who enjoy citizenship in the kingdom, founded on Abraham, framed by Moses, and ruled by David, were miserable failures at keeping the law. 
Their kings were failures at ruling in righteousness. Their priests were failures at actually atoning for sins. Their prophets often were failures at proclaiming God's word, substituting their own words instead. But there were some prophets carrying in the time of David and the kingdom of Israel afterwards a promise. Glimpsed in the covenants before them of one who would come with a better covenant. One who would fulfill all the previous promises and lead God's people into his blessings. A better prophet, a better priest, a better king, a better follower of the law, a son of Abraham who would bless the nations, a son of David who would rule over an eternal kingdom, a second Adam who would obey God's word and receive eternal life. And that brings us to the last covenant, the covenant of grace. After 400 years of silence, It seems as though God's people had been totally erased from God's mind or His concern. There's a a promise. First to Elizabeth and then to Mary that someone's coming. Someone's coming. And Gabriel says to Mary, you'll call His name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. Now, we understand everything is built for the people of God on the covenant of redemption. And we recognize that all humanity is dead in their trespasses and sins through the covenant of works. And throughout the Old Old Testament and throughout the covenants that we see in that Old Testament, God has built a kingdom of Israel, a, a spectacularly blessed people who receive the promises of God, the the words of God from the prophets, the anointing of the Spirit of God on their leaders. But we recognize that in these types and shadows, there's escalation and there's fulfillment. And that Jesus is coming not to save an ethnic people from their sins, but He's come to save from all nations. He's come to save all those who were chosen before the foundations of the world. He's not choosing those who are sons of Abraham by birth, but sons of Abraham by faith. See, back in the promises that were given to Abraham, there was a promise of a son, an impossible son. Right? Abraham's pushing 90. I don't know how many 90-year-olds you know that have babies. Zero. And yet it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now what's going on? What's going on is all throughout God's work in the world that we see written for us in Scripture, there has been a promise that has been carried from Genesis 3 to now. And from The people of Israel, God's scaffolding that has been built through centuries and promises and failures and redemptions over and over again so that the promise might be fulfilled, there's a remnant who don't find their identity in their heritage. They don't find their identity in their privilege as being a part of the people of God known as Israel. But they recognize that before God, I'm nothing but a sinner. And all that I have to bank on is a promise. All I have to put my chips on is a promise that someone is still coming to bless the nations, to rule as king forever, and to crush the head of the serpent. And in the Gospels, we meet him. His name's Jesus. He's the Son of God, He's the Son of Man, He's the Son of David born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, the stump of Jesse. He's the son of Abraham, an Israelite by birth. He's a new Adam, a new representative who is not born with the mark of sin that all all that you and I have been born with because he was born of a virgin without sin. And so because he was born without sin, he wasn't born with a broken covenant of works. He was born as a new representative, a second Adam, except this Adam was obedient. 
obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because he was obedient to death, he secured the right to eternal life. Jesus is our substitute. Not just for our sins, not just as a lamb, but as a new representative. And now, the scaffolding that was built throughout the Old Testament has produced the fulfillment of the promise that God had been giving the whole time. And so in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, Jesus is walking with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's puzzled, it seems, that they don't understand that the Messiah, the one who was promised to come, would have to die. And it says, starting with the prophet Moses and the prophets, he began to explain to them all the scriptures concerning himself. The mystery of the promise has been revealed in the covenant of grace. So you and I now have a new opportunity. As those who are in Adam, we might now have life in God. We might receive the actual promises of the covenant of works for free. Because the stipulations have already been fulfilled. Jesus already paid our way. He already walked that road of perfection. And now, as Hebrew tells us, Hebrews tells us, he's the mediator of a better covenant. Not a covenant that begins and ends with death. Not a covenant that only recognizes the temporality of life in a kingdom. But a covenant of grace rooted in the triune God that we might have life instead of death. We might have joy instead of sorrow. We might have freedom instead of slavery to our sins. We might experience God's unending love and delight instead of His just wrath. This is a new covenant. It's a better covenant. And that covenant has been available since Genesis 3. Abraham looks forward and says, I know that God is faithful to keep the promise. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So how is it that humans fallen in sin are made right with God? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not novel. Like we didn't just come up with that. That's been the whole story the whole time. And so if we rightly understand how we put these covenants together, I think it helps us make sense of what this book is trying to tell us. That all throughout history, man in their sin has been unable to do something about that soul that is dead. Because we're born in Adam. And although we recognize common grace, and so you and I can go to our neighbors and our loved ones and our family members and our coworkers and enjoy real relationship, real fellowship, real blessing because we're all under Noah, it terminates because they are dead. And the temporal things, like the law, like heritage, like upbringing, I mean, this is the rebuke of Jesus to the Pharisees, right? Don't even start talking about how the fact that you're a son of Abraham. I can make son of Abraham, sons of Abraham out of the rocks. That means nothing to this covenant of grace. This is the scaffolding. That's the building. But the good news of the covenant of grace is, once the building comes, you know that building that Jesus says would be destroyed and then he would raise it up in three days? That building says to all the nations, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman, sinner, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Because the burden that I put on you is easy. The yoke that I give you is light. This is a better covenant. Jesus, our mediator, has seen fit to extend by the grace of his Spirit 
in accordance with the plan of his Father. An invitation. You're in Adam, but you don't have to be. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're a child of wrath. You're a son of disobedience. Your end is destruction. Your God is your belly. There is nothing left for you but wrath. And you're storing up wrath moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, because you continue to walk in your blindness and say that you see. You hear, but you don't understand. But Jesus can bring life out of death. Jesus is able to touch unclean things, and instead of becoming unclean, he makes them clean. Jesus is able to bind up the brokenhearted. He's able to give sight to the blind. He's able to make the deaf hear. He's able to unstop the tongues of the mute. This is a better covenant. And the story of Scripture is the story of a triune God who is infinitely worthy of our worship. Because He's our Creator. We could stop there and not talk about any of these things and say God in Himself is still supremely, infinitely worthy as our Creator and us being the creation. All we owe to Him is joyful, supreme submission and worship. And He did all this. Freely. Enters into history and secures for you and for me that our end will not be His wrath, but His joy. This is a better covenant. So let me pray for us. Yeah, it's a little late. I want to pray for you. And then if you look at your liturgy, there's a, a time of supplication. Again, let me just reiterate my hope. My hope is that you're going to leave this place tonight believing a few things. Number one, this Bible is unbelievably amazing. And it's unbelievably amazing because it's true. And I am really excited about this semester. So spend just a moment, maybe get with the person next to you, and just just pray. Pray for one another that we would have our hearts softened to pursue God and to pursue Him through His Word. He's given us all that we need, Peter tells us, for life and godliness. And, And the pursuit of God and life and godliness isn't a miserable, legalistic buzzkill. It's an invitation to life. It's an invitation to know God. So spend just a moment. I'm going to pray for you. Spend just a moment praying, and then um, I think the praise team's going to come and close us out, something like that. Let me pray. God in heaven, who is like the Lord? There is no one. You are high and lifted up. You are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. The skies above proclaim your handiwork. And if that was all that we knew, that you made us, that you were holy, it would be sufficient for us to orient our whole lives around you, to to make much and to, to structure our lives so that all we do day in and day out is praise you and worship you because you are worthy to be praised. And yet in your kindness and in your grace, You have seen fit, not just for us to know that you exist, but to know who you are. And by your grace, for us to know that you know us, and that you love us, and that you are pleased with us in the righteousness of your Son, and that you are delighted in us. What? What is this but grace? Who is like the Lord? God, help us by the power of your Spirit to recognize that we have been given 
treasure in these jars of clay. And yes, we want to know and understand and put our Bibles together rightly, but I pray just in this moment that the the right response of our hearts would be to behold. God, you are unbelievably good. And to remind us that anyone can get in on this. Because it's free. Because Jesus made a way. We don't have to be in Adam anymore. We can be in Christ. Our representative doesn't have to be the failure. He can be the one who was obedient to death. Who conquered sin. Who conquered hell. Who conquered the grave. God, we love you. We love you because you first loved us and we pray that you would fan the flames of our hearts even now for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.